Welcome to part two of our series on private credit investing. Fine art may have an investment future well beyond the auction houses and galleries. Alan Snyder of Shinnecock Partners talks to Kevin about private lending anchored by pieces of art as collateral, as well as onion underwriting and duty of care for investors. Alan also explores plans to take notable art into the world of blockchains and NFTs. Well, today I'd like to welcome Mr. Alan Snyder to our podcast. Alan is the Managing General Partner of Shinnecock Partners, and he is also the founder of ArtLending.com, which is a unique form of private credit with art as the collateral. So without uh, butchering what you do before you have a chance to say so, Alan, I'm going to turn it over to you and just say, give us just a brief history about your background, your work experience, and how your winding road led you to where you are today. Well, I'm very happy you didn't say my checkered past, so it's a great (laughs) question. For anyone sitting at a computer, any listener, I should say, check out uh, Shinnecock.com, S-H-I-N-N-E-C-O-C-K.com for more than you ever wanted to know about Shinnecock Partners, and the rascal you're listening to at the moment, Alan Snyder. Going back in time, clearly I'm an itinerant. I got an MBA from that Boston trade school and went directly to Wall Street. (laughs) And there was a survivor of endless mergers, totally dating myself. I built a raft of businesses there, the listed options business, the largest insurance seller, of all the Wall Street firms, and later on with two other co-creators created the Discover Card. At that point, I said, this ain't any fun. And I quit and said, I'm gonna try to live by my wits. Well, now y'all will laugh because I woke up and found it necessary to form Shinnecock Partners as a family office investment boutique Knowing Wall Street never met a fee they didn't like and were casual about risk, Lord knows <laughs> I was guilty of that as a young sprout, so I had to protect the few pennies I had. A little bit later on, I came out to California to get my fanny shot off, and I spent seven years, Kevin, restructuring a $20 billion insurance company, mm-hmm. open the door, rolling a hand grenade, billion of high-yield bonds, oops, as Drexel was going under. Yep. Not so nifty. Then I, uh, again, can't hold a job. I founded an internet business uh, with a thesis of if you gave people the ability to compare insurance policies head-to-head, maybe you'd have a business. Well, it was a little harder than my peanut brain allowed for, but eventually we grew to 800 people, and I sold it. Allstate today owns it, still owns it. It's called Answer Financial, and it still exists, at which point I returned full-time to Shinnecock Partners. Wow. So a, a few small companies that some people may know in there that you've been a part of along the way. Well, you know, I think, Alan, what's fascinating is you and I were introduced through the quote unquote, family office world as, as small or large as that may be. And, uh, and really the 
the uniqueness of what you're doing now in art lending is, is something that is just not often seen. And uh, if you could just tell me what brought you into the concept of a doing it yourself for the first time, and then looking at those transactions and saying, you know what, I think this is something other folks would want to come along do beside me in the future. Cool. First and foremost, and to set the background, I'm a passionate believer in niche investing off the beaten path. Think of Nassim Taleb, far more famous than me. And what he talks about is it's anti-fragile. I think that's true because generally there's low correlation of niche strategy between themselves and between more traditional forms of investing. And the critical thing is diversification, which it offers. The other thing that about niche investing, and certainly the art proves that to me, is steady, consistent returns at an attractive rate. I would argue that compound returns are the eighth wonder of the world, particularly when you think about the average endowment earns about 6% a year. And most investors say, oh, I got to do much better. Those are some of the best and the brightest and smartest people. And that's what they say, because it's the volatility that can kill you, as we may be experiencing a little bit these days. Mm-hmm. Now, with that as the background, six years ago, approximately, I was looking around for a yield investment that could be durable. And a friend of mine running a multi-billion dollar credit fund in New York said, Snyder, we've got a $100 million book in fine art secured loans. It's a sidelight to us, but you got to take a look at it. The deeper we looked, the more I liked it. And let me give you some of the thinking behind it for you to poke holes in. With the museum quality, think, let's say, of of a Picasso, you've got great collateral and it's a hard asset, particularly currently in inflationary times, owning a hard asset's great. Thing about art that is particularly attractive, it is a global asset. Art, like gold, moves around the world with currency fluctuations. So... If the U.S. market is crummy, go to London, go to Abu Dhabi, go to Hong Kong, because the art is transportable. I love having multiple exits. Second, art over the last 50 years is appreciated at a compound 8%. As a lender against fine art, which is what we are, Isn't it attractive to have collateral that appreciates, gives you more room to be wrong? Compare that, oh my goodness, to lending against an auto. The damn thing appreciates like a house on fire, equipment, everything else. Art is appreciating. I'm conservative. I love that. The other thing is with art, there is a well-developed market. 
the high-end art market has about somewhere north of $60 billion, some say as much as $80 billion a year of trading. Well, that gives you terrific price discovery. What is the bloody piece worth? Of course, endless due diligence we can get into depending on the time, but that's attractive. In our case, being the nervous Nellies that we are and wanting to get our money back, the LTV in real estate can go as high, you frequently hear about it, it's 80%. Our loans are 50% or less of the value of the piece or pieces. Now, another cardinal rule I think of investing is invest in places that are capital short. Mm. We know, I mean, you've, you and I have talked about it, when capital rolls in like a giant high tide, covenants get crummy, the returns get uh, lower, it's risky. At the moment, and it's been this way for as long as we've been in it, the loan loans against fine art are growing about 15% a year. Currently, give or take, about $24 billion of art loans are outstanding, and it's growing. And the people seeking these loans are increasing number of people borrowers. Now, where do we focus particularly? Inventory, very prosaic, inventory finance for dealers, gallerists. Hmm. Yes, we also lend again to major collectors, but the nifty thing about dealers and gallerists are, if in the art world you lose your reputation, you're toast. Hmm. You can't stay in the business. So the dealers have a little extra weight on the balance bar for us to be sure that they don't poop out. So that gives a sort of moral suasion impetus. Now, two last things, and then I'll pause for a second. Short duration. I'm a bigot about short duration. All right, interest rates are going up, so now it's sort of obvious to everybody. But short duration in general gives you the flexibility in a portfolio of moving from one investment to another. And in the art lending world, you have basically one year or less duration. Love that. And the obvious one, which I let off with, there's a 0.15% correlation to the mm. S&P 500. So it really is, it really does, I should say, beat to a different drum. Now, in our case, one day you'll laugh. About a year ago, I was maybe contemplating my navel on the weekend, and I said, you know, Kevin, why not get what we're doing rated by a credit agency, credit rating agency? Yes. Well, that was quite a sojourn because, as you might suspect, the credit rating agency tortured us mercilessly. They gave us no quarter. But which, they, they, which they should have. 
<laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Knowing me, you had to say that. <laughs> well, we got it rated. We got our pooled vehicle rated. And Shazam, rated A+. Plus. Wow. We did a deal in December for $20 million against a pool of collateral as a sidecar. And that was rated A because it was a single borrower. So that's one third-party validation for us. And, and we just got another one, which is kind of fun. There are four major auction houses, Christie's, Sotheby's, Phillips, and Bonhams. Bonhams, no accounting for taste, has decided, and we have announced it in the last three weeks, that they will be using Shinnecock as, their, as the lender to their client base. So mm -hmm. if somebody wants to put in an auction bid and they want some additional capital, we'll help them finance it. Maybe they have a pool of existing artworks and they want to diversify further. Terrific. We're there to help them. So that's kind of fun. That is neat. That is neat. So you've spent a considerable amount of time working, not just on the, the conceptual idea that we want to lend, you know, on the artwork, but also I wanted to have the audience learn more about really the function. How does it work underneath? Because when you and I were going through due diligence and we were asking a number of these questions, it was like, okay, well, who owns it? Where is it stored? How is it insured? Do you, do you have an actual claim on the asset outside of the loan document? You know, there's all of the things that family offices tend to want to know in these, these environments. And, and I was just blown away about the structure you had put underneath, how much thought you would put into every step of the way. And it showed me two things, A, how well you know this space, and then B, how well you know what we do because you knew that I would have to go get those questions answered. In fact, for those who don't know, Alan wrote a piece a number of years ago that I still go back and use as a reference. Oh my. Uh, it is it is your, and I'm going to get the number wrong. I think it's 381 questions to ask in a due diligence process. It's true. And so sometimes I'll be working through due diligence with Adam, our chief investment officer, and, uh, and we'll, we'll look at something and say, okay, we don't really know how to specifically diligence this piece. And we're like, okay, we'll go back to, uh, go back to Shinnecock's guide. I'm sure we'll find the question for it in there somewhere. Well, just so you can torture all those strategists that you're dealing with, let me answer your questions because they're good ones. Let me go through a typical trade that sort of puts the pickle on the fork. <clears throat> Let's say somebody comes to us, pick a Picasso. The borrower, let's say, is a collector or a gallerist. It doesn't matter. And we will say, great, we establish the LTV. Let's say it's 40%, which is our average. We'll say, all right, we'll get it. If it's been through a recent auction, boy, terrific price discovery. Open outcry in an auction, all right? If it hasn't, much like evaluating real estate, which I know you all do a lot of, we will get an appraisal of the piece and 
we will only use certain appraisers that are expert in a particular genre and are a member of one of the three big appraisal societies because they're pretty particular about who they let into the society. Uh, and you see a lot of nitwit appraisals. If anybody's listening, be careful. You want, you want that kind of control. And what are those three major groups? I, I'll have listeners. to. Okay. It, yeah. I, I can't remember them top of mind. Now, so we established the V of the LTV. We established the loan to value ratio, as I said, 40%. Establish the interest rate. Typically, somewhere, depending on the art, 9 to 13%. All right, now you've got the rate. <clears throat> and the borrower prepays the interest hmm. for the term mm -hmm. of the loan, meaning that let's say the loan's $100,000 or whatever, that interest is deducted from the proceeds of the loan amount. In addition, the borrower pays the insurance costs. We use Chubb. We have a huge policy on $40 million. And it's pretty inexpensive, shockingly. Hmm. Now, the next one will warm even your black heart. <laughs> we take delivery of the collateral in a bonded art warehouse, climate controlled, fire suppression, all of that jazz. And we keep it. It's under our control. Then, in addition to that, we file a UCC1, utilize the Uniform Commercial Code, establishing us as a senior secured creditor. Well, possession, attractive rate, one-year term loan. By the way, somebody said, well, Alan, Will you extend the loan? Yes. Homeo economicus for our investors. A dealer typically will hold art for two to five years. So you say, well, give them a five-year term loan. Banks tell me that. I say, are you nuts? Why would we want to take a five-year bet on the value of the collateral? That's for the long owner of the art to make, not us. What do we do? 90 days before the end of the term of the loan, if the borrower would like to extend it, we're happy to. We've done all the diligence on the art, a lot of work. We will get the art reappraised. And if we're happy with the appraisal amount on our loan to value, we will extend the loan. That's a typical kind of structure. Now, Going further, risk mitigation. It's where I believe prudent investors live. We do something that I nicknamed onion underwriting. Onion underwriting. I'm interested <laughs> to hear about this. We're not like a bank. We're lending against this hard asset. However, we will underwrite the borrower. Basically, what we're trying to do is avoid bad actors. It's not a cash flow loan. We want to avoid people, that, and we turn down a lot of loans that are highly litigious or 
if the borrower is in current financial distress, we will pass because people in those situations do kind of weird and wonderful things. Maybe not so wonderful if you're the lender. So we do that on the borrower. We get a third party firm to check court records. We have do the same thing if it's out of Europe, et cetera. Now, lots of work on the collateral. Talked about the pricing. In addition to the pricing, there are two huge databases that we independently of the appraiser access. And we look at comps ourselves and say, well, how does this piece compare to other Picassos in my example that have sold? Now, we do one other thing that some people, and we ask for exhibition history, we ask for provenance, chain of title. Oh, here's a buzzword for art interested people, a catalog raisonne. Many artists have a, if they're deceased, have a foundation that says, mm-hmm. aha, that picture of Kevin K. Lackey, that good looking guy, we painted it. Picasso actually painted it. All right. So we do that. Now, where we're a little different than others, we want a permanent export certificate because, as I said in the preamble, we want the ability to sell at art anywhere in the world, and you can only do that with a permanent export certificate. Some borrowers think we're uh, unnecessarily picky. I'd rather be picky. Then the structure of the loan I described a few minutes ago. And and the last item I would argue you should always do is sweat the details. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, a couple of other general, generic maybe comments. Don't be afraid to say no to any investment, any loan. Beware, here's a fun word, the Stockholm syndrome, you know, where you become too close, the hostage taker and the close to your captors for sure. So here's what we do. We want to uncouple the people that are doing the work on the origination of the loan from my partner who's not engaged in that. And you have to pitch him so he has no vested interest in doing it, pitch him as to why this makes sense. It's that uncoupling from the origination from the final approval, because all of us get vested in an idea or whatever. One other thing, and I hope I don't sound like I'm on a soapbox. <laughs> I run into this because as a family office boutique, we invest outside of our own cooking, although we're the largest investors as individuals and in the art stuff. Does the firm you're dealing with exhibit a duty of care for investors? If they don't, if they talk about, oh, this investor was so stupid, blah, 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 Run. Yeah. Because God forbid that could just as readily be you as the investor. Mm -hmm. 
Duty of care can be things like, I'll give you a couple of fun ones. What we do, we're audited by a major audit firm. Then in addition to that, I worry, can, it, can somebody run off with the money? Well, we have an account at First Republic Bank that has a computer block on it. And the only way money can move is by wire. In addition, we don't control the bank account. We use SS&C GlobeOps as a full-on administrator. That means not only do they control the bloody bank account, it's a pain operationally for us, but for an investor, ooh, good safety, a bulwark. In addition, we can't cook the books because SS&C does all the investor accounting independently of us. So those are some of the things that we put in place. Wow. So that was uh, very much like the initial conversation we had, so <laughs> giving everyone the rundown of everything underneath. And, and I think, Alan, you've gotten to know me and my team here, especially Adam over the years, and, and we really are a stickler for this stuff. And I think it's what actually drew us closer to Shinnecock over the years was that we noted that you applied the same filters into your investment strategy and then moved it into the art world. I, I was one thing we always ask in our due diligence, and I think it would be something that listeners would want to know are who are your major competitors at artlending.com? I know the one that I see, uh, you know, we're almost browbeaten with it over the head on online ads and, and podcast ads is the masterworks.io is one that touts the ability to invest in fine art, maybe not necessarily lend against it, but invest in fine art. Or do you have any real direct competition other than maybe a, a private bank that has a boutique arm that does this? Your usual keen insights. Yes, the, the biggest competitor are private banks where ultra high net worth individuals may have 100, 150 million and qualify as a private banking relationship. Now, in those situations, Bank of America has a bunch, pretty much all of the major players have that gradation. Now, here's what they'll do. Because they have that relationship and usually I don't mean this too disparagingly. <laughs> Their pricing is aggressive, so it's very, very profitable to have that relationship. In addition, they control those assets. So they will make an accommodation loan to those investors to buy you know, a Gulfstream, their 100-foot uh, yacht, or a Picasso. And they will do it because they have all the security of that $100, $150 million. And they will do it at an accommodation rate that no standalone relationship would sustain. Mm -hmm. So their price, very competitive to us. And now with our rating, we have a little bit of extra play that even they do not have. One thing that does distinguish us again versus some of the other smaller lenders, 
I say this hesitantly. To my knowledge, we are the only, other than the banks, which automatically have it, we're the only fully licensed lender as a standalone. And by that, we had to get a license in California, the Republic of California, where we're fingerprinted, we have to post a fidelity bond, et cetera. And we did all of that, took about six months. Now, so that's the big competitor. Masterworks, a very interesting execution, very aggressive in their marketing, God bless them. They're buying art long. They're mm -hmm. buying the Picasso. Mm -hmm. We're lending against the Picasso. So that sets us in a very different path from them. So that's Masterworks. And the big competitor are these private banks that have all the security of all the underlying collateral and this intensely profitable relationship from all the other stuff they do. Yeah, well, and I will I will say this, having been a part of one of those big private banks in the past, uh, they tend to keep these divisions very quiet. They, as you said, they are very much an accommodation for clients of a certain, uh, I don't want to call them size, but revenue stream. They tend to look at their clients in terms of revenue streams and not relationships, <laughs> which is when you're a publicly traded company, that's a must. So I don't necessarily fault them for it. Just not how I wanted to operate the rest of my life. But with all of that said, now that we, we know the landscape, we know how it works, we know roughly what you are setting return expectation toward uh, duration is what's next for the world of art lending as we wrap up today. Great question. In our art lending, I'll just bridge it this way. I see managers or deployers of strategies blow up because they grow too quickly. Maybe because I'm old and crotchety, ask Adam or my <laughs> wife. <laughs> I wanted Shinnecock and our art lending to grow at a measured pace. I wanted the ability to, to say no. Okay. Being in the art world, we have lent money against 185 major pieces of art. So we have access to art, which is uncommon. All of us get bombarded with questions about non-fungible tokens. Mm -hmm. We're in the process of setting up a new company. Pretty revolutionary. Couple of facts. There's $1.7 trillion of valued art outstanding. We know I gave you the trading figures, 60 to $80 billion a year. So this is a sizable market. Imagine, what if, to stick with my Picasso, what if we did the following? Instead of a non-fungible token where you can have the privilege of owning the digital image, which is all over the place anyway, of a bored ape, a crypto kitty, etc. And all you get is the image. You can beat your chest and say, I own the image, but the image, you and I can get it, even if somebody else owns it. All you have is the image. What if we took a $10 million Picasso by way of example, put it in the ubiquitous art warehouse, 
put a trustee on top so we know it ain't going anywhere. And then just to keep the math simple, sold 10 tokens for a million dollars each, giving each token holder a 10% ownership interest in that Picasso, fractionalizing the ownership of this hard asset. Now, have we done anything compelling? I think so. And we're going to build this. Attached to that token, we can append all of the information on the art, which most art buyers never get, the appraisal, the exhibition history, if it was in a catalog, raisonne, other expert opinions, and you can get it all in one place. For, net, for once, no opaqueness <laughs> yeah. for the owner of the token. In addition, the art world is anything but open and visible as to the pricing. So each token holder would know the price that that token trades at. So for the first time in the art world, you would have price visibility. Third, you would also have an immutable record using the blockchain of ownership of that token. Wow. Now you can track it. And I think using this, this is a, I think you'd bring real value to it and you're democratizing the ownership of really great art that will have enduring value, if not potential appreciation. So that's where about, by the way, on the website, you know, I think NFTs will continue to happen. These would be tokens. However, on the website, there's an article I wrote, which is as true today as when I wrote it. It's been quoted in other places, no accounting for taste, <laughs> um, called NFTs Caveat Emptor. If you're thinking about buying an NFT as they are today, read it. There are a lot of not obvious risks hmm. owning those tokens whether it's the intellectual property, you know, there was a fame, you know, you're probably too young, Kevin, I'm jealous. Remember the Dune book? Oh yeah. No. Somebody tokenized that with a non-fungible token and some people put up three and a half million dollars thinking they were going to use the book for all this stuff. And they forgot. They didn't own the copyright. Wow. which typically does not go with an NFT. So they just wasted three and a half million dollars when they bought that token, that NFT. Well, they can take it into the metaverse and read it there, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so anyway, we're excited about that. We're, we're going to do it. We're probably, we'll raise some money. I think is my long suffering partner, of 30 years since you know him, Joel Parrish, said, Snyder, I think that's the best idea you've had in 30 years. We're pretty excited about it because we think we're going to bring some substantial value to the marketplace. 
Well, I think you already do through your, your lending <laughs> you. capabilities. And also just you being in and around the market, Alan, I always enjoy the time that we get to talk. And even when we're just geeking out over diligence pieces or learning about what's going on in our, in our, in each other's lives and our businesses. And as we wrap up today, I just want to say thank you again for being on and uh, how could people find you if they wanted to learn more about, uh, if they wanted to learn more about art lending? Great question. As usual, you're a fine friend and thank you for having me today. I would say the starter kit is to go to Shinnecock, as I said, S-H-I-N-N-E-C-O-C-K for the golf players. Of course, they all know Shinnecock on Long Island, Shinnecock.com. And on our website, we have a 506C pooled vehicle, so it means we can be totally open. There is endless information on what we're doing in the art world. The thing that is not on the website, because we can't easily, is we about every four weeks, three to four weeks, we have a co-investment opportunity or a sidecar, uh, which you and I have talked about at various times, a little narrower than the pooled vehicle, but some pretty sparklingly attractive rates. And uh, so on the pooled vehicle, one thing that's neat about it, it has some real tax advantages for any offshore investor, any tax qualified investor, because there is no UBTI. Mm -hmm. uh, and that can be a great simplifier. So there you go. Perfect. Well, Alan, thanks again. And uh, we look forward to the next time we get to do this again. I can't wait to come visit you in person. Thank you so much. You bet. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Uncorrelated Minds podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. For more information on the topics covered in this podcast, please visit the show notes page for links to further information at www.sinaceracapital.com. Sinacera Capital is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Sinacera and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. The information provided is for educational and information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status, or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor. All information has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy is not guaranteed. There is no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy, reliability, or completeness of, or liability for, decisions based on such information, and it should not be relied on as such. The views expressed in this commentary are subject to change based on market and other conditions. These documents may contain certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance, and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. Any projections, market outlooks, or estimates are based upon certain assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of actual events that will occur.